Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are going through the Bible, reading through the Bible. I hope that you made it through the Old Testament. Maybe you're still bogged down in Ezekiel (laughs) or someplace around there. Listen, don't beat yourself up. Just keep reading. But we're going to start in the New Testament. Maybe you're you're just beginning with it. We'll start in the New Testament. This week, you're going to read the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, before I begin... I want to tell you what's going on between that last page of Malachi and the first page of Matthew. There's 400 years between them. And so I'm going to give you 400 years in four minutes. I want you to know because when you pick up reading in Matthew, there are things that are there, present there, that you have no idea that were not there in the Old Testament. Of course, when the Babylonians took over and and they took uh, Judah into captivity, they were in captivity until the Persians took over. So the Persian Empire was the one that defeated the Babylonians and Cyrus the Persian allowed the remnant to go back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the city and the walls and so forth and Nehemiah. Well, the Persians ruled until 332 B.C., and then the Greeks showed up, Alexander the Great. Of course, his empire only lasted 10 years because he died in his middle 30s, and he uh, had conquered the known world, but the Greeks took over. Now, I'm talking about the history of Israel here, the, the promised land. Well, after the Greeks, after Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., the kingdom divided And we call this the Egyptian rule over Israel. This is when the Ptolemies showed up. So and so were Ptolemies, so and so, and the rule of them. And it lasted until 204. Now, what's significant about this period is that the Septuagint is translated. Now, the Septuagint, that word means 70. There were 70 Hebrew scholars, the Septuagint. And, and folks, this is important because a lot of the translations that you have today in English, some of that comes out of the Septuagint. And sometimes you see it as LXX, as 70. And, and if you ever see that in your Bible in the footnotes, that's what it is. But it was translating the Old Testament into Greek. The Hebrew into Greek is the Septuagint. It happened during the Egyptian rule. At 204 B.C., until 168 B.C. is the most tragic rule, the Syrians. Uh, It was a reign of terror. Antiochus, Epiphanes, wrecked Jerusalem, tore down the walls, killed thousands of people, desecrated the temple, slaughtered a pig on the altar at the temple. I mean, it was a horrible time. Well, the result of that, the Maccabeans, Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt that overthrew the Syrians and, and, and it didn't last long. It lasted from 167 to 163. And, but he restored the temple and restored the worship. And then at the end, at the, after the Maccabeans came 
the Romans. So you've got six empires involved here. But when you pick up Matthew, the Romans are in rule, and they ruled at least till 70 AD, if not longer. So, and of course, they appointed Herod the Great as part of that area, and he did all that building. And, then, and, and so you know about that when you pick up in the New Testament. Now, there's some groups that came along also in that 400 years. The Pharisees developed. Now, the Pharisees believed in oral law, not the written law, but the oral law, and they kept adding to it. They believed that the oral law was given to Moses and Joshua and the elders and the prophets and to the men of the great synagogue, as they called it, and they became interpreters of the oral law. It wasn't necessarily written down, but they just, they just made up a lot of stuff too. But, that, but the Pharisees showed up. Then you have the Sadducees. Now, they're not the cousins to the Pharisees. Sadducees rejected this holding only to the law, meaning the Pentateuch. Well, they rejected the Pharisees. They, they held only to the law, the Pentateuch, which is the first books of the Old Testament. They denied the spirit world, the angels, immortality. They denied the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were totally opposed to each other. The only time they got together was when they crucified Jesus. And then you have the scribes. You've heard, you're gonna read about the scribes. Where did they come from? Well, they were not only transcribers of the law, but they were a new body of men who became expounders and guardians and teachers of scripture. They became a very distinguished order in the nation of Israel. And Jesus denounced them because of their corruption and also because of their outward show of piousness. They would try to be more spiritual than others. You also have the synagogue that shows up. The synagogue's not mentioned in the Old Testament. So where did it come from? Most believe that it started in the Babylonian captivity when, when the, the Israelites turned from idolatry. They've never sent, they've, ever since, they've never gone back to idolatry. But they still wanted to hear the reading of the scripture. So the synagogue developed out of that. It was congregational. It was not priestly like the temple. It was congregational. In fact, preaching began there. And, and when the early church was formed after the resurrection of Jesus, they took a lot of their form from the congregational uh, Meetings of the synagogue and the reading of scripture and the preaching of scripture. Even some of the early church leaders, elders, bishops, deacons carried over from the synagogue. And it was as a result of people still wanting to hear the, the, the uh, Old Testament read, but not having a temple or the priest or, or availability to the temple. And then you also have the Sanhedrin that show up. Sanhedrin, there were 71. They were like the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. They were comprised of the high priest. They were comprised of 24 chief priests who represented the 24 orders of the priesthood. They had 24 elders called the elders of the people. They had 22 scribes who interpreted the law in both religious and civil matters. There was a total of 71 of them. Now, you're gonna see those names in the Gospels. And that's where they came from. It happened in that 400 year period between Malachi and the book of Matthew. Now Matthew was born a Jew, but he, he became a customs officer for Rome, a tax collector. 
And he, that made him a man of wealth, a man of means. And he left all of that to follow Jesus. Now, when he writes the gospel, he writes primarily to the Jewish congregation. And Matthew is the perfect book to put at the beginning of the New Testament because it's like a swinging door between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew quotes so much of the Old Testament concerning the prophecies of the first coming of Jesus and refers back and forth. So his goal is to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's written toward the Jewish people to prove who Jesus is. He was considered a traitor because of working for Rome, and then, of course, he left all of that to follow Jesus and became one of the apostles. So there you have it in three or four minutes, and you want to read more. There's a lot to read, but it just kind of gives you an, an idea of what took place and what is called the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. Now, today, I want to read out of Matthew chapter 25. And I want to tell you that Matthew 24 and 25 is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet meaning the Mount of Olives and discourse meaning preaching, the sermon by Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus was asked by the disciples, what's going to be the sign of your coming again, the second coming? What's going to happen in the world? And what are some of the signs? And Jesus tells that in chapter 24. And then he uses three examples of people who are going to be living and, and they should be expecting the return of Jesus. One of those is the parable of the ten virgins, who some of them had enough oil in their lamps and some didn't. And then you pick up on verse 14 of chapter 25. And this is something that you're very familiar with. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought, it, brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have at least deposited my money with the bankers. 
and at my coming, I would have received back with my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he who will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There were four persons named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody and nobody did the job that anybody could have done in the first place. I have some good news for you. God loves fat people. (laughs) Faithful, accountable, trustworthy. Fat. Faithful, accountable, trustworthy. You find this parable only in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a parable about people who are waiting for the Lord's return. You've heard this, ta- you've heard this parable of the talents probably many times, but I want to focus for a moment and tell you that you are talented. You have been given abilities and opportunities and gifts and wealth from God. And you are expected to be serving the Lord until he returns. Did you know that God did not save you to sit? He saves you to serve. If we're going to be used by God, there are several things we need to notice. First of all, we must have the correct attitude. God has given us special abilities, he's given us gifts, he's given us resources, he's given us talents. And did you know you've been given everything you need to do God's will for you? Did you know that? You've been saved, he's given you his spirit, he's given you what he wants you to have to serve him and do his will. He doesn't compare you to anyone else, he's given you what you need. Now there's several things about this attitude. First of all, you have the correct attitude about your assignment. In other words, you know that what you have doesn't really belong to you. It says in order for his estate to be well managed that the landowner, a man traveling to a far country called and his own servants and delivered his goods to them. So everything you have is on loan to you. You are a steward. You are managing what God gave you. The word doulos is the word for servant or slave and it's a general term to any kind of bond servant. And a wealthy person would often have special servants who would manage things. And it's, it's not unusual for you to be a power of attorney or to give somebody the power to manage part of your wealth or estates or whatever. You, you have people that look over you So the first attitude is what you have really isn't yours. Have you thought about that? 
The second part of a correct attitude is about our allocation. What's been given to you? Now, it'd be easy to be able, it'd be easy to grumble about what you don't have. How come you didn't give me five? You gave him two. How, you gave him five, how come you only gave me two? And one could say, how come you only gave me one? Well, if you read, it says that the, he, he gave it, he doled it out according to his own ability. The owner knew, the, he knew the servants. He knew them well. He knew what they could handle. He knew what they could do. He knew what they couldn't do. The word talents refers to money, but the word itself represented a measure of weight. The value of a specific coin depended on its weight and its composition, such as gold and silver. And the emphasis is on differing levels of responsibility. The man obviously represents Christ who's gone to heaven and he's still gone between his first and his second comings. And the servants represent those who claim or profess to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus mentions three levels of responsibility, but it's only as an example. There's all kinds of levels of responsibility. And our opportunities vary greatly according to who we are. God has, has given us different things. He knows you and me. And he knows what we can and cannot do. And he knows what we can and cannot handle. True believers are given gifts. Spiritual gifts. You can find that in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. But he's also given us the resources that we have or allowed us to make them or, or to come by them. Even among the 12 apostles, there were different levels of responsibility. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle, and even Peter was the predominant one in that group. And so the issue of the parable pertains to what each slave does with the responsibility he has been given. I like what S.D. Gordon wrote in, in an article called The Bent Knee Time in Christianity Today. He said, we have nothing to do with how much ability we've got or how little, but with what we do with what we have. The man with great talent is apt to be puffed up. The man with little to be little the little. God gives it much or little. Our part is to be faithful doing the level best with every bit and scrap and we will be if Jesus' spirit controls us. God has given you stuff. He's given you abilities. He's given you time. He's given you gifts. He's given you wealth. He's given you everything you have. God's allowed you to have it. The third attitude is about action. I will invest what I have and not hide it. Now the, the servants with five and two talents, they didn't produce equal amounts, but they did produce equal percentages. It's interesting that 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God's going to ask you, what are you doing with what I gave you? He didn't compare you to anyone else. He didn't want you to be anyone else. He wants you to be you. So the correct attitude is important about what God has given it and we realize it doesn't belong to us, 
But then notice, beginning in verse 16, the conceivable accomplishments. I like what Andrew Murray wrote. He said, the world asks, what does a man own? But Christ asks, how does he use it? God's not going to ask you one day, what did you accumulate? How, how, what all did you accumulate? He's going to ask, what did you use it for? How did you use it? Well, there, we see different accomplishments here from these different servants. First of all, there's I will do a lot with a lot. <laughs> the servant who'd been given five talents was eager to serve the Lord. It says he immediately went out and traded. And the word implies that he kept on doing business and kept on doing things. He kept on working until the master returned. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to get lazy every now and then. Do you? Y'all know what that means? Can all of us got a lazy streak? And it would be real easy for us who have been serving the Lord for a long time to say, you know, I think I've pretty much done all I can do and all I'm going to do. After all, I, I got my bases covered. But that's not the attitude you have. Is if you love the Lord and you've committed your life to the Lord, yeah, your work may change a little bit, but you're still serving God. I'll do a lot with what he's given me, a lot. He gained five more talents. The second accomplishment, I'll do a lot with a little. Well, the second servant, he got two talents. He could have said, well, I don't have very much. I, I'm not going to be able to do much. But he, he did the same thing. He went out and traded and did and worked until the master returned and doubled it. The third accomplishment of possibility is I will do little with a little. Now, the behavior of the third servant is radically different it was a common practice in the ancient world to bury things of value because they didn't have bank vaults or safety deposit box. So it's not unusual that he hid the money. But the slave had not received or been exposed to this or been given this opportunity to hide it. He had the same obligation to use as the other two with his maximum ability he represents a different kind of person who professes to be cry, to be a Christian. Kind of reminds me of an old story of a farmer who said lightning struck his shed and burned it down. It saved him the trouble of tearing it down. And then it rained on his car and washed off his car. It saved him the, the chore of washing his car. And they asked him, well, what are you doing now? And he said, well, I'm waiting for an earthquake to shake the potatoes out of the ground. <laughs> Harold Fickett wrote about a wealthy businessman who on his deathbed, he was dying. He was filled with remorse. He said that 10 years earlier, he had been given the opportunity to teach a Sunday school class of nine-year-old boys. And thinking he didn't have the time, he declined the offer. And now, deeply conscious that his life would soon be over, he confessed to his pastor that his most painful regret was that he had missed such a golden opportunity to serve the Lord by investing his life in the lives of those nine-year-olds. He estimated that there would have been a hundred boys would have passed through that class. And he said, my investment in stocks and bonds will stay behind when I leave. What a fool I've been. You see, the Lord gives us a lot of different ways to serve him. And, and you may think, well, what I'm doing is not very noteworthy. Maybe no one ever notices. Maybe you don't ever get a thank you for it. 
But if you're doing it with a heart that says, I'm doing what I can do, and God has given me this opportunity, I can do this, I'm doing it for the Lord, I want to tell you, God is noticing. You can accomplish what God wants you to do by just serving him. Not letting everyone else do it, but saying, Lord, I want to be part of what you're doing. I'm glad to be part of what God is doing right here in this church. Well, we see the right attitudes, and I guess the wrong attitude, and we see the right actions and the wrong action. But here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He said there's coming, there is a coming and certain accounting. Y'all have heard of Daniel Webster? You've probably referenced his book. He was once asked about his greatest thought and he said, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. Accountability's a good thing, isn't it? Don't you do better when you know somebody's watching you? Depending on what you're doing. But have you ever stopped and thought that you're going to give an account one day to God? And let's just get it out here on the table. All of us feel like we failed. All of us. I could have done better. I could have done more. In this parable, the exact length of time that the owner was gone, we don't know. But what we do know is that when he came back, it surprised them. They weren't expecting his return. Well, the Lord's gone right now. The Lord's gone and we're looking for his return. We don't know when he's going to come back. But the implication is that the master of those slaves came back unexpectedly and the master had two responses. The first is commendation to the faithful. He commended them. He first commended their character. He commended their character which expressed itself in serving. Because the master represents the Lord himself, he's going to come back one day. And isn't it amazing to think that the creator, the perfect creator, the Lord of the universe that's holy and just and righteous would even consider offering praise to, one, to you and me for what we had done. That's, that's, a, that's an incredible thought, isn't it? He said, he commended his character first. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, the Lord says that if you're faithful here, he's going to give you greater responsibility in the coming kingdom. I don't know everything that means whether it's in the millennial reign of Jesus or it's in eternity in heaven. Did you know, you do know this is going to be a shock to a lot of Baptists, but you do know in heaven we're going to serve him. It says that in Revelation. So it's time to get busy practicing now. Doing something for the Lord. Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. All this stuff is yours. All my abilities are yours. I gave you my life. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. He mentions the second, that he commended the first servant who doubled what he had been given and, and he said, put him in charge of many things. 
And he said the same about the second servant. Enter, but, but he also said, enter into the joy of your master. There's joy in serving the Lord. I will tell you there are frustrations at times, but serving the Lord brings joy to your heart. I want to be part of what God's doing. However I can be part, Lord, I want to do my part. You know, we're considered a body of believers. First Corinthians tells us that the church is a body of believers. You know, you have a body, you don't consider it a bunch of different parts. You consider it a body. Now, I would dare say that most of you got up this morning and did not even consider anything about your liver. You didn't wake up this morning going, oh, my liver's functioning today. You don't ever think about your liver until you don't have it and then you die. You may not be one of those parts of the body that anybody notices, but the kingdom of God couldn't function without you. There are so many things going on in this, this congregation. I don't know all the things that are going on. And I'm glad I don't because I don't have to do it all. <laughs> but I'm so thankful for people who drive the carts, who greet at the doors, who help with the children, who greet. I mean, I, there's just... I'm so thankful for the people who minister to the shut-ins and we don't even know that or, or who, who do something in Jesus' name to their neighbor or take some food to a bereaving family or to a new family or to, I, I can't begin to name all of it and, I, and I, I want you to think there's a lot more to serve in the Lord than singing or teaching or preaching. God didn't give you the gift of preaching or you'd be preaching. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Some of you have the gift of service. Some of you have the, God's just given you these abilities. Some of you have a glowing personality. Some of you, that's not your gift. <laughs> you're nice, don't misunderstand me, but you're not a very talkative, greeting kind of person. Maybe you're better at just doing other things. I, I don't know. But what I want you to see is that the Lord's not going to commend you or com, com, by comparing you to somebody else. He's going to say, I made you the way you are. I understand the circumstances you are in. I have given you the abilities. I've given you what you have. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with your own life? What are you, how are you using it to further the kingdom. There's so many ways. But I also want you to notice the other response is the condemnation of the faithless. What was the first thing the third servant did when the master returned? He began by saying, he began to condemn his, his character. Now, he's identified as belonging to the master, but he didn't know the master. 
If he had, he, he immediately accused him. You're a hard man. You, you reap where you don't sow. And, and I figured you, you, know, you were gonna be this and this and this. And so I just hit it and I'm just gonna give it back to you. In other words, he produced absolutely nothing with what had been given to him. Now, this slave does not represent an atheist or an agnostic because he recognized the master. And as his legitimate owner. He did not misuse his talent or of only moral selfish things like the prodigal son or embezzle it like the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. He simply disregarded the stewardship that had been given him. In other words, there are some people who would say, well, this person must have been saved and now he's not because he didn't do anything, he lost it. No, this person was never saved in the first place. This represents a person who's been given opportunities, who understands things about the church, who may know about God, but they have never committed their life to Jesus Christ. I know how that is because I've done that. In spite of the privilege that they had to hear the gospel, They've never responded to the gospel. So the first thing, he, he didn't do anything, and then he demonstrated his counterfeit allegiance by attacking the master's character. You're a hard man and so forth. He didn't even know his master. Did you know you can know about God and you can know about Jesus and not know him? Amen. Only when you surrender your life Say, God, I know I'm nothing without you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I commit my life to you. The Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you the desire now, a new life, gives you the desire to do something for Jesus. It just happens. It just happens. His inaccurate estimation of his master's character was sufficient proof that he really didn't know his master. You know, a lot of people jump to conclusions when something bad happens. They say, well, God's this way and God's that way. And, God, and they imagine it, but they don't look in God's word to see how he really is. They just jump to conclusions. Now, it sounds like the master agreed with him, but he was being a little facetious when he said, well, even if you thought I was a hard man and you thought I'd harvest crops that don't belong to me, if you really thought that, you could have at least put it in the bank. The Romans had a banking system. 12% was the, the top simple interest on a loan and 6% was given for deposit. He said, I could have at least had some return. But see, the servant proves that a person, now listen to this, the person who has no desire to serve God or to honor God or to glorify God by using the gifts, talents, and abilities entrusted to them has never experienced salvation. You cannot be saved and not want to do something for the Lord. A saved heart produces a serving heart. A fruitless life shows a heart that is faithless. The first two servants 
used their opportunity to serve the Lord before his return and they eagerly awaited. They proved the genuineness of their salvation. They were willing to invest everything. The third servant, on the other hand, put aside what God had given him and went about his own selfish business. And there are people who will attend church and they can sit in church and they may come on Easter, they may come on Christmas, they may hear the gospel and they will go on about their selfish pursuits and not care anything about God. But I want to tell you, that's the people that one day are going to hear, depart from me. I don't know you. In fact, this third slave, it says, cast him into outer darkness. That is a common New Testament description of hell. Nobody likes to talk about hell. I don't like to talk about it. But Jesus talked about it more than he did heaven. Why is it called outer darkness? 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So light signifies God's presence. Darkness signifies his absence. Not only is it a place of torment, the lake of fire, it's a place of darkness. And it says there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, folks, this parable shows the difference between true children of God and him, them serving him and honoring him and those who just simply go through the motions whose hearts are not there and may, may appear to be a Christian and may appear to be following Jesus, but on the inside, they're not there not here to make you doubt your salvation. If you've been saved, God is not the kind of God that says, sorry, you missed a word. You're not saved. But salvation is more than just praying a prayer and saying, Jesus saved me and then being baptized and then going on your life like nothing ever happened. Listen, it doesn't work that way. It says old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And even if you still make mistakes and you still sin, and we all do, you know it. The Holy Spirit says, uh-uh. That's not, that's not what's in keeping with what you want. You feel guilty. You feel like something's wrong. You know it's wrong because the Holy Spirit lives in you. But if you can live in sin continuously and it never bother you, you need to take another look. You need to take another look. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. That's why he said there's going to be people who think they're okay, but when the Lord returns, they're going to be so surprised. Hey, wait, I was in church. But the Lord said, but, but you never committed your life to me. Just because you were raised in church, just because your parents were Christians, just because you, you've been around church stuff and godly stuff all your life doesn't make you a Christian. Amen. Sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. Standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> it's a commitment of your life. You can know Jesus today. Nobody's perfect in here. 
None of us have a perfect track record. All of us are a little bit worried about giving an account of our life, but let me give you some good news, that Jesus has paid for it. Jesus has paid it all, and by the grace of God, we have been saved. Now, from this point on, what are you gonna do with that saved life that he's given you? All of it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those today who don't know Jesus. They know church. They may have been raised in church. But they don't know Jesus. Only you can show them, Lord. Only your Holy Spirit can show them. Now, if there's sin in their life, Lord, I know that you'll show that too and, and we can confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, and you're faithful, you're continuously faithful, continuously just to forgive us. I pray you'll put us back on the right track, but I pray for those who think they're saved, but their life does not show any evidence of it. I pray for those that need a church. Lord, it's such a sweet place here. If this is where you want them to come, then you bring them here. You lead them to come. I pray for those that need to be baptized, just like these this morning. Unashamed. I'm following Jesus. I'm not ashamed of it. I thank you, God, for people who keep standing for you. Lord, all of us, all of us need to improve. We know that. But thank you that you've given us abilities. And I pray that people would see how important they are as themselves to you with what you have given them to use for you. Help us to be faithful. If you're watching us online, you can hit that connect button or you can text the word living hope. No space, living hope. One word, 474747. You can do that in this room. You can use the communication cards. You can indicate that and drop it in a box as you leave. Lord, I pray that people would respond to you today. That people would be drawn to you. And Lord, help us to serve you as long as we have breath. And thank you for giving us a place to serve. I pray you'd open up other doors to share Jesus with people and to, to, to be ministers and lights in our neighborhoods with our neighbors and whoever else we come into contact with, our coworkers. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for giving us all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.